Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63, or look along in your bulletin. A couple years out of college, a few of my buddies and I, we decided we were going to go mountain biking on the famous Berryman Trail. Well, it's famous in Missouri, where I'm from. Uh, The Berryman Trail winds, it's a loop that winds through the beautiful rolling wooded hills of the Mark Twain National Forest. It's 24 miles long, and it's not an easy path to ride on. It takes about four hours to ride it. And did I mention it was in the heat of the summer, 90 plus degrees, with brutal humidity in the air? Almost halfway through our four-hour ride, we were running out of water. (laughs) Who brings just two bottles of water on a four-hour mountain bike ride in the middle of the summer? I guess me. Uh, Anyway, with about an hour left in the ride, I offered to to ride ahead to round up some fresh water and to deliver it back and rescue my friends who were a little bit slower than I was in getting around the trail. Problem was, I got lost. Thinking I'd take a shortcut on a gravel road, when instead I should have just crossed it and kept going. I found that I was just pedaling and pedaling and pedaling, and the gravel road was getting narrower and narrower. It was so hot out. I was long out of water. My mouth was so dry, it really was sticking to the roof of my mouth. I began to think, if I don't find some water soon, I could literally like die of heat stroke. And then I saw a lone farmhouse on the side of the road. It looked abandoned, and upon inspection it was. And then I saw my Savior, a garden hose spigot. Could there be water inside? I got my bottle, I stuck it under the, under the spigot, and I turned it on. There was a rushing sound, and then all of a sudden, though, it went to a drip, drip, drip. Barely a bottle full. But then I looked in and I smelled it. It was, it was a brownish red, rusty, putrid water. The system had been turned off and had been sitting in there for, for years, perhaps decades. I was thirsty. I held my nose. I gulped it all down. Instead of being satisfying, it was repulsive. My stomach churned. I literally wanted to puke but it was fluid in the body. (laughs) I got on my bike. I started heading back the other way. Along comes a farmer in a pickup truck, gives me a ride. Then I see my buddy Chip in his SUV. He came to my rescue. Where were the rest of my friends? Well, they were in the other vehicle, long since traveling back to St. Louis on the three-mile drive, three-hour drive. I sat in Chip's SUV, drank Gatorade, and recounted my story. In Psalm 63, David finds himself alone in the wilderness, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. What had happened to this great king of Israel? David's own son, Absalom, he schemed and plotted to overthrow his father's kingdom. His own son. Have you ever felt the betrayal or the abandonment by someone you thought was committed to you? It's like being in a wilderness, figuratively. 
David was in the wilderness, literally and figuratively. David fled his palace in Jerusalem to hide in the wilderness. Now, he could have been spiteful towards God. He could have said, God, you anointed me king, and now you let my own son overthrow me? And he could have thought about his own reputation. What will the nation think? Once TMZ gets a hold of this, my approval rating will tank. But if the, you know the story, and you can read it, it's in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 19. I encourage you to. If you know the story, it was, own, it was David's own sin that caused the situation in the wilderness. Now, what often happens to us when we find ourselves alone in the wilderness with our reputation in the gutter because of our own sin? Often we do not turn towards God, but we turn away. We try to find a remedy in our own hands, or we blame shift or downplay things. We try to remedy the situation on our own. But David is thirsty. Thirsty for the only thing that can satisfy him. See, David knows that only God, only God's steadfast love, can satisfy the deepest thirst of his soul. So David thirsts for God. Now, let's read Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text before us, this song of your people. It's not just for David, it's for us. It's not just for then, it's for now. And as always, we ask for your spirit to guide us, to inform us, to transform our hearts, to soften us, that we may really truly understand your steadfast love which is better than life. We pray this in the name of Christ, our strength. Amen. 
So in Psalm 63, David helps us to sing. Remember, the Psalms are what? The songbook of God's people. David helps us to sing this marvelous truth. There is no greater source to satisfy the hunger and thirst of our souls than God. In verse 1, he says, my soul thirsts for you. In verse 5, he confidently states, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. David isn't talking about physical food and drink. Remember Jesus, he said, man cannot live on bread alone, but by what? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What the Bible helps us to see is that we, all of us, all humanity, were made by God for God. We were made by God to find our ultimate satisfaction in life, in Him. God did not design us to find our satisfaction in rusty, moldy, abandoned spigot water. And yet we do. Though we were made with a thirst for a meaningful relationship with God, we try to quench that thirst in the arms of a lover we just met or that next business deal, or even that idyllic home in the Hamptons. What Psalm 63 helps us to see is that only God can truly satisfy the pronounced thirst of our souls. And therefore, because God alone is satisfying, we must thirst for him above all else. That's the big point this morning. As we look at that, we're going to look at three points to support it. First, because God alone is satisfying, we must thirst for the presence of God. Then we must thirst for the praise of God. And then we must thirst for the peace of God. First, because God alone is satisfying, we must thirst for the presence of God. You know, you can tell a believer from an unbeliever, as well as a mature believer from an immature believer, by how they respond to wilderness experiences. What are examples of wilderness experiences? I'm sure you could give me a few. Things like having your heart broken by one you thought would love you for life, or you lose your job, you experience a debilitating injury, the children you raised in the Lord seem to have abandoned the faith, your retirement account got a little mismanaged and there's not much in there. When David wrote this psalm, he was literally in the wilderness, and he was figuratively in the wilderness. His own son was chasing him down to kill him. Now, this is really important that you understand this. David is in the wilderness. He cries out to God, and what does he cry out for? Let me ask. When you're in the midst of a debilitating ordeal, and you cry out to God, What is it that you usually cry out for? Are you like me? I must admit, I often ask God to fix the situation or get me the heck out of it. Notice David does not cry out, God, if you are my God, then get me the heck out of here. No, David doesn't thirst for an exit that saves face. Notice that David thirsts not for God's gifts or the things God can do for him, 
But he thirsts for what? God himself in the midst of his wilderness experience. David begins this song with the very simple, profound statement of faith. It's there. Look at verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. David models the experience of all true believers. Every one of us here will eventually find ourselves in the wilderness through our own sin or through the sin of another or simply because we live in a fallen and broken world. And when you find yourself there, you will come to know whether your faith is genuine or not. See, a a genuine Christian is always driven by adversity to God. Oh God, you are my God. I'm indebted indebted to Martin Lloyd-Jones this morning. He writes this. He says, you will find many people who have always thought they were Christians and who have always been regarded by everybody as Christians. But when something goes wrong with them, either personally or to someone they love, their immediate reaction is to say, why has God done this to me? They turn away from God. They become annoyed and are filled with questions, doubts, and grumblings. They feel that God is dealing with them unfairly or unkindly. Many of them even give up their profession of faith. Are they not also like Job's wife? You remember Job? Job lost all of his kids. He lost all of his wealth. And he lost almost all of his health. And his wonderful wife, sitting down to breakfast, says to him one day, she told Job, curse God and die. (laughs) Pass the butter. What was Job's response? Job Job responds this way. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why is it that genuine believers instinctively turn towards God in this way? I think it's because they feel they have a right to do so. They turn to God because they know Him. Christians, when facing all sorts of trials, don't get on their knees and pray, whatever gods might be out there, I'm looking for you to maybe help me. They do not cry out to empty space, to some unknown deity. They do not cry out to some distant, remote, removed God. David says, Oh God, my God. Now today, almost continually, you hear people saying, oh my God, oh my God, did you see what she did? Oh my God, look what she's wearing, oh my God, oh my God. That's blasphemy. It's not a sincere crying out to God, right? But David turns to the one whom he knows is there. God, you are my God. Like a child calling to a father, David turns to God. David cries out, my God, come near. I long for you. David's soul is not searching for an exit strategy. David isn't turning to God as some last resort. Nor does David need persuading to do so. David longs for God's presence in the midst of his wilderness experience. And so I think every one of us here this morning needs to embrace this truth, even if you're a Christian or not. Perhaps it could drive you deeper into into faith. The greatest good you can ever experience in the midst of your wilderness trials is God's presence. See, only God can quench the thirstings of your life. 
David knows this from past experiences. There were days in the past when David had trials um, and he was still in Jerusalem. And so he was able to go to the sanctuary in Jerusalem. And what was it that he experienced? Look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. One commentator, Motier, says, David has past spiritual experiences and memories ready at hand to fortify him for present emergencies. Christian, you've experienced this too, haven't you? A time when you entered into the worship facility, the church, spiritually spent. And whether it was the prayers or the confessions or the music or the preaching or the Lord's Supper, God made his presence known to you, right? That's what David is recounting. But now David can no longer go to church. He is far from God's people, and he longs to be back in the sanctuary. But David is a mature believer. He isn't dependent upon others to prop him up. He calls out to God. See, genuine Christians don't just believe in God or pray to him. They've experienced him. They know him. That's what David's talking about. God alone is satisfying, and therefore we must thirst for the presence of God. Now, we must also thirst for the praise of God. David shows us that because he's so satisfied in God that he longs to praise God. Now, for so many people, praise just seems like drudgery or work, right? You know, why would you Christians want to praise God or things like that? But the truth is, right, think about it. Whenever you genuinely praise something or someone, is it not a genuinely enjoyable experience? Praise is fun. When you jump up and cheer at a sporting event or a concert, it's because your soul is moved in rejoicing and you cannot help but do it. And isn't it true in the midst of your cheering? Are you not enjoying yourself? Yeah. Our souls long to cheer and to praise. Do you see that in yourself? When you experience something that is praiseworthy, then the act of giving praise is thoroughly enjoyable. It's not drudgery. Our problem is that we delight more in cheering for you two or the Yankees than we do our own creator. But for David, there is something about God that causes him to jump out of his seat looking for someone to high-five. In verses 3 to 5, David says, God is so amazingly good to me. He so quenches my thirst. He is so satisfying that I cannot help but jump up and cheer with my lips, with my voice. Look at verse 3. It's perhaps one of the best in all the Bibles. Look at it. Let it sink in. Let, let it profoundly move you. Listen. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Remember three weeks ago, we covered the word steadfast love. They're a translation of the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is like one of the best words in the Hebrew Bible. Hesed speaks of God's loyal love. 
It's a committed love. It's a covenantal love. Chesed is a death till death do us part love. God's love for his people is steadfast. It's loyal. It's a committed love. David says that God's steadfast love is better than life itself. Can you say that? And when you say it, do you really mean it? That's been the question I've been asking myself this week. David is saying that his happiness hinges not on how well his plans unfold. David's happiness is not tied to the success of his earthly goals and dreams. See, there is no earthly triumph that any human could ever achieve apart from God that is more valuable than knowing God. Stack up all of mankind's vain achievements, all of them, and the steadfast love of God is greater still. Do you believe that? Most people find their happiness in how their plans materialize or not. They love their life, and they live life to find happiness in the things they do or possess, things like an Ivy League diploma or trips to those exotic places uh, accompanied by well-orchestrated posts on social media or a handsome or pretty spouse or well-behaved, well-dressed children who make other moms envious. We love life more than we love God who has given us life. David shows us how wrong we are. The steadfast love of God is better than life itself. God made us so that we would live our days on earth with him. And, 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 then, and as he being our, our greatest joy and delight in life. But because of the fall, we now hunger and thirst for life itself to make the best out of what we have. And so we thirst to find our fill in created things rather than the creator. Do you see this tendency in your own life? I mean, this isn't just for unbelievers. Christians as well, uh, you know, we find ourselves losing our focus and needing to be reminded of the steadfast love of God. So David vocalizes the truth that we must profess. The steadfast love of God is better than life. And in verse 4 he says, So I will bless you as long as I live. He's like, this is my whole life, right? This isn't just when I'm in the wilderness, and then when I get out, well, everything will be fine again, right? No, all of his life. In your name I will lift up my hands. There we go, Presbyterians. There you go. Praise God. Lift them up. All right. Oh, you can get it. Maybe just one hand, all right. All right. But it is true. People like Presbyterians, you don't raise your hands. Well, you can rejoice in your own heart and have your hands raised in your head while they're not really being raised here. Is that true? Okay. But nonetheless, feel free to raise your hands. All right. And look at the confidence of David in verse 5. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You know, in the ancient worship of God's people where they had animal sacrifices, the fat portion of the animal was reserved for God himself. It was to be wholly burned and consumed 
on the altar. The priests could not eat it. They could eat other parts of the animal, but not the fat. The fat was reserved for God. What is David saying here? David is anticipating being nourished with food only God himself can share. What is it about the steadfast love of God that's better than life? Just a couple things. One, the steadfast love of God redeems you. All of your failures, all of your foolish thirsting after false gods, all of your finding life in this life and instead of God, God's steadfast love will pardon you. He will redeem you with his love. And also the steadfast love of God, it redefines you. In other words, by God's grace, you get a new identity. Dearly loved child of God. And this identity can never be taken away. You might crash and burn in your career. Your youthful looks will wrinkle away. But the steadfast love of the Lord never fades. So how about, along with me, taking time today and this week to interrogate yourself. Ask, what things do I thirst for in life other than God himself? What is it that, if taken away, would cause me to be undone? And confess whatever that is to God and experience his steadfast love. Rejoice over his goodness. Become satisfied in your soul and praise him with joyful lips. So we've seen that because God alone is satisfying, we must thirst for, his, for the presence of God. We must thirst for the praise of God. Now let's see how we must thirst for the peace of God. David is running for his life. Talk about cause for anxiety and sleepless nights. And yet David doesn't appear all that restless. Why? It's because he thirsts for the peace of God. And he has it. You all know too well, don't you, the anxieties that can creep in at night time. Some of you fear laying your heads down at night to sleep because you know that your mind will race. David has every reason for his mind to race, but instead he experiences God's peace. How does this happen? Well, at night, David reminds himself of two things. First, how God helped him in the past. And second, how God will bring justice in the future. Look at verses 6 through 8. Here David remembers God's help in the past. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David models a mature relationship with God. David says, I remember you on my bed. I meditate upon you at night and what is it that rolls around in David's mind the taxes that are due next week the loneliness that's in his life no how God has been his help one of my absolute favorite quotes of David comes um, well you remember you remember the story when uh, he was just a boyish young man just tending sheep for his father and his brothers were off at battle with the Philistines and his dad sends him to the battle lines with food for his brothers and, and David arrives and he hears Goliath blaspheming uh, the people of God and, and he can't believe that no one's doing, not doing anything about it. 
And so David goes to see King Saul, and David says, I'll kill him. I'll kill that uncircumcised Philistine. Let me at him. And Saul looks at him, and, and Saul says, looks at him and says, you've never swung a sword. I mean, there's no way you can defeat this man of war. But then David takes a few moments to recount to King Saul about how when he was tending to his father's sheep, and a lion or a bear would attack his sheep, and David would fight them off or kill them. And, and, then, and so then after telling King Saul that, these words, famous words, my favorite words, 1 Samuel 17, 37, David said, The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. This Lord will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David remembers how Yahweh had delivered him from the paw of the lion and the bear. David had a track record with his God. David knew God's character, that Yahweh was his help, that God will take him in, into the shadow of his wing, no matter the circumstances. And so he faced Goliath with peace. The next time you're lying in bed and, and you're a little anxious, having a hard time sleeping, remember and meditate upon what the ways that God has helped you in the past. The circumstances may have changed. It may be a Goliath in your future tomorrow, but God remains constant. In verse 8, David gives a vivid, Im vivid image of what living like this looks like. He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David says the soul clings to God. You know what? That's our application this morning. We must cling to God. When battles rage, when bodies fail, when friends betray, when bosses belittle, when children stray, when temptations overwhelm, we must cling to God. The greater the pressure, the harder we must cling. Dig those fingers in. Do not let go. That is our proper response. Now, cling to God, and when you do, what is it that actually takes place? Did you see in verse 8? My soul clings to you, but then God does something. Your right hand upholds me. One of my joys of being a dad is uh, carrying my kids up to bed. It's getting a bit harder. Uh, as One is getting a little bit older, um, but I still got a couple I can carry. When I lift my children up, um, they just wrap their arms and legs around me, and they just hold on as if their life depends on it, right? Now, let me ask you, if she was to let go, would she fall? No, why not? Because actually, I'm holding her. And there's been countless times when the kids are sound asleep and you have to pick them up and carry them upstairs. The arms and legs are just dangling towards the ground. You know, they don't even know I'm carrying them to bed. Remember me carrying you to bed last night? No, I don't remember at all. That's what David is talking about here. Christian, we can cling to God only because God has first laid hold of us. When anxious, remember and meditate upon God's help in the past. 
and cling to him with all your might. And you will see that he actually has a firm hold of you. Now, the other reason why David is able to be at peace is because he knows that God will bring his enemies to justice. The other day, uh, it was the last Tuesday, I was riding my bicycle, and I was entering into East Hampton, I'm riding along, and some worker in a work truck decided it was the perfect time to, 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 um, to throw a monster energy drink can right at me, hit me in the side. What an idiot, I thought. But then I rebuked myself. You know, Jesus warned about how bad-mouthing others is, is like committing murder in our own hearts. It's like wishing the person to be dead. And then I remembered verses 9 through 11. It's very convenient. I was preaching on it this week. And verses 9 through 11 helps us to be at peace when others wish us harm. It tells of God's justice to come. By the way, I did run into a East Hampton town police officer. We had a little chat. Describe the vehicle, but you know. Anyway. Look at verses 9 through 11. But those who just seek to destroy my life, listen to this, even his own son, right? His own son is seeking to destroy his life. David knows that God's justice must come, even to his own son, if he defies God and his king. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Jackals get what the lion leaves behind, what the hyena leaves behind, what the vulture leaves behind. They get the scraps of the scraps of the scraps of the corpse. It's no good to be a jackal. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. David knows that everyone who opposes God, who rejects God's anointed king, will in the end face justice. God sees everything, every thought, every deed, every action, every lack of action, every hurtful word or deed, every selfish thirsting after gods of this world. Everything wrong will have a judgment day. Everything. Even the malicious throwing of monster energy cans at pastors on their bicycles. Now, knowing this changes how we can live in the present. I don't need to have retribution for that guy. In fact, I can pray for his soul and for his happiness. God will hold every person accountable. Now, do you see how this gives you the ability to be at peace at night? Justice is in God's hands. I do not need to plot revenge until the wee hours of the morning. Justice is in God's hands. And so no matter the outcome of my circumstances, even if I suffer loss, I can move on. I can praise. David is saying, I can be at peace in the the midst of people seeking to destroy me because in the end, I know that God will hold them accountable. Do you operate with that mindset? 
Do you have the spiritual resources within you that allow you to quickly be at peace with other people? See, God alone can satisfy you in such a way that you can lie down at night in peace. All right, so there we have it. Because God alone is satisfying, we must thirst for him above all else. We must thirst for the presence of God, for the praise of God, for the peace of God. Now let me wrap up. I need to point out, though, how David doesn't just model thirsting after God. He actually points us to the one who has thirsted in our place. David was anointed God's king over his people, but he ultimately points us to Christ, the king over all of God's people. The king who defeated an enemy far greater than Goliath, Jesus defeated the ultimate adversary, the devil himself. Remember, Jesus was led out where? Into the wilderness? And he was tempted by the devil? David was in the wilderness because of his sin. Jesus was in the wilderness because of your sin. If you read the account in 2 Samuel 15, David leaves Jerusalem. And he had the Ark of the Covenant with him, the place where God dwelt. He actually sent it back into the city because he knew the people of God needed the presence of God more than he did. And then where does he go? Up to the Mount of Olives, weeping along the way. A thousand years later, Jesus ascended the very same Mount of Olives. He wept that the Father would take take away the cross. If there's some other way, Jesus cried out. Because he knew that on the cross he would be in the wilderness, suffering, great torment, But he said, but not my will, but your will be done. And you know, as Jesus led his followers, he regularly talked about thirsting after God, right? John recounts how Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And you remember the Samaritan woman at the well. She had had five husbands already. She was thirsting after earthly relationships to provide the meaning that only God can give her. And and Jesus said to her that he could provide her with living water from a well that if she would but drink from it, she would never be thirsty again. Confused, she says, "Where where is this well? How do I get this living water? Jesus said, whoever drinks of this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be a spring welling up to eternal life. Jesus, the Son of God, was inviting her to quench the thirst of her soul in his eternal fountain of of relationship with him. Have you done this? Have Have you turned to Christ, who alone can quench the thirst of your soul? But perhaps you're saying, I'm not deserving. You should have seen my life. (laughs) I've done some terrible things, right? So too, King David. He committed adultery. He killed a man. He was a horrible father. But the steadfast love of God that is better than life was upon him. David's relationship with God was rooted in God's mercy and in God's grace. 
David grieved over his sin, but he also rejoiced over God's steadfast love. And so if you turn to Christ for forgiveness, you can experience true forgiveness. How do we know? Because Jesus thirsted on your behalf. What do you mean? What are you saying? We really did. Upon the cross, Jesus literally experienced the dry and weary land, and he thirsted on your behalf. John, the disciple, recounts right before Jesus died on the cross, right after he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And right before he breathed his last breath, he cried out what? I thirst. Bearing the weight of our sin, being separated from God in the wilderness of the cross, Jesus thirsted in body and soul. His soul thirsted for God. His flesh fainted for God as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Jesus went there for you. You did not deserve it. You deserve God's rejection. But in Christ, you have his pardon and acceptance. My friends, isn't the steadfast love of God wonderful? And can you joyfully say with David, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And do you see that because God alone is satisfying, we must thirst for him above all else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of hesed, steadfast love covenantal, till death do us part, love. We thank you that in Christ we can come under the shelter of your wing, true and real forgiveness, a fountain of eternal life, springs welling up in us. Because of this steadfast love, we are a people who love you and seek to praise you. Remind us this evening as we lie down to bed. May we remember all the things that you've done on our behalf. And may we sleep with great peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.